Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This is Julio Rodriguez, and this is the Lookout Landing Podcast. podcast my name is matthew robertson i am the host of this show although you may have noticed we did an episode earlier this week without me uh featuring kate prusser mikey ajetto and joe doyle all members of the lookout landing family sort of rehashing the mariners wacky active trade deadline so if you want uh more specific baseball talk and trade deadline banter go check that out but today we are welcoming someone making their first ever podcast appearance uh we'll Woo! get to her in a second <laughs> we are very excited but we'll uh we'll get to her in a second uh kate prusser is here who just wooed uh kate how's it going i'm a woo girl that's definitely what you would say if you saw or interacted with me for any amount of time woo girl yes. kate as um, per usual, kate is wooing i had to drive the podcast bus the other day because um we we're doing prospect talk because of the the trades and john is not around again uh which you'll also notice he's not on this pod so this is three straight pods with no john troopin deep gravelly voice keeping us rooted so i have no idea how this is gonna go um but i just wanted to say matthew that i appreciate driving the podcast is hard like keeping track of the questions and keeping them organized and and keeping the conversation going along and making sure people don't wander off into making infantile Reese McGuire jokes 
Mikey, uh, is it's a challenge. So I appreciate all the work you've done and put in, including over the off season in hosting this podcast. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I think it goes fireman, teacher, <laughs> and then podcast host in terms of America's most noble profession. Maybe so, yes. like COVID-19 nurse at the top. Yeah, Nurses and true. doctors at the that's top true. of that. But We're shortly learning. under that, very, 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 you know, not small under that is, is you. Well, I'm sure some of them are going on podcasts to share their knowledge with the world. So that's like double heroism, which is tough for me to compete with. <sighs> I'll try my best. Um, but yes, Kate is here. And also, as we mentioned up top, making her Lookout Landing podcast debut. It is staff writer for Lookout Landing, um, historical researcher extraordinaire, and uh, just overall great person, Amanda Lane Cumming. How's it going, Amanda? Hello. I'm excited to be here. We are so excited to have you. Um, as we've mentioned, this is your first ever podcast um, appearance, which is a huge milestone for anyone. So we thought it'd be a good idea maybe to provide some context. Obviously, people have read your work on lookoutlanding.com. But for many, they this is the first have. time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> They better have. Otherwise, this is going to be a lot of learning for them, which is also good. But um, this is the first time that many people have heard your voice, Amanda. So we wanted to humanize you as much as possible um so it was kate's idea um we talked about this before we started recording to sort of just go down a list of questions mariner related maybe not mariner related to to learn some stuff about the life of amanda so amanda um my personal favorite question something that i started a whole podcast series on was how did you become a mariners fan besides just geography and growing up here what was your your intro to the seattle mariners Well, my dad was a huge, huge baseball fan, and he grew up in the Boston area and moved out here when he married my mom. So when we were growing up, he tried to convince us to be Red Sox fans, and my first act of rebellion was becoming a Mariners fan instead. Good choice. I mean, probably not actually a good choice, but but it's it's a choice I approve of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just... I stuck my lot in with the Mariners, and here I still am all these years later. So who is uh, along this, this ride of Marinerdom? Who has been your favorite player? Actually, what I want to know is who's your favorite player, because that's usually like the superstar, someone who like you know strikes a chord with you. And then who was one of your favorite players who like wasn't ever that good or was kind of more cult hero status? Okay. My favorite Mariner of all time is also my first favorite Mariner, and that's Randy Johnson. He was just so cool as a kid, this big, tall, gigantic guy just flinging these fastballs all over the place. Because when he was younger, he didn't have great control, so it was just all over the place, and it was very fun to watch as a kid. And then a player who has cult status or under the radar. I guess there's a couple I could go with here. One would be John Marzano, who was a backup catcher in the mid-90s. <laughs> that is a deep cut, Amanda. <laughs> you took that question literal. <laughs> if Lookout Landing had existed back then, he would have been a huge Lookout Landing favorite. He was just very fun. Every time Griffey hit a home run, he would go sit next to him in the dugout when Griffey came back to sit down and he would joke around with him so his kids could see him on TV. 
He was fun. Uh, that's very smart, too. <laughs> yeah, if you want to get on TV, that's the way to do it. Go stand by Griffey. Yeah, that's actually genius. <laughs> uh, much respect to John Marzano. Um, my, I have a question. So not all of us at Lookout Landing are complete, like, prospect people. You know, a lot of a lot of the staff members kind of wait until somebody gets up to, like, the major league level before they start getting attached. But that's hard now that uh, everything is kind of all about the future. Who is your favorite? Who's somebody you're really excited to watch for the future that has kind of broken through? I know that the prospect stuff is not something you sweat as heavily as maybe some of the rest of us do. Who is the one who has kind of broken through that bubble for you? Probably Julio Rodriguez, and I think a lot of that is your selling of him, Kate. You were very yes, excited about I have been, him right been away. Been selling him hard since day. <laughs> Julio sells himself. He sells himself. He does. And I moved to Tacoma three years ago, and I just cannot wait for the good prospects to get up here. Like I, I really hope they don't. Not too many of them, anyways, jump from double A all the way up to the majors because I want to see them here in Tacoma. And I think Julio is the one I am most excited to see. And now, why haven't you, in the name of journalism, gone down to Cheney Stadium and stood on Cheapskates Hill for us and, uh, and used your long range lens to catch us some, some glimpses of what's going on there? Well, partially because it's summer and it's very hot out and I don't like the heat and that hill is just right there. You can't hide from the sun. And also I would have to bring my kids with me and that could be quite interesting. I mean, I think it would be fun interesting, but (laughs) says the childless person. As I watch them roll down the hill. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically what you do on a hill, right? Uh, the other thing that you bring to us, Amanda, is you are a cocktail maven. Like, (laughs) always in the Slack, Amanda is posting on Friday nights, like, especially since we've been quarantined and, you know, none of us can go out anywhere. Doesn't matter when you're a super bartender like Amanda. She's always posting some picture that makes me want to, like, jump in my car (laughs) immediately and drive to Tacoma and uh and get get one of what you're having can i get your like favorite cocktail or what you're making right now what what's your what's your recipe you know i think my favorite cocktail of all time is a dirty martini Hmm. and i don't even like classic i like but i really like them in martinis and i'll even eat the olives afterwards after they've soaked in the gin and vermouth Yep. No, I miss this. I'm not a huge olive person. Like, I'll eat one on, like, a metze platter or whatever, but I don't actively go out of my way to, like, seek olives. Yeah. I just kind of accept them when they come to me. <laughs> um, I appreciate they're good at parties. They're that friend. Um, but, yeah, an, a martini in a, a gin martini with an olive is... And to me, when I go places and I'm not totally sure... Uh, that's like my fallback drink because I know you can't screw it up too much Mm. as long as you watch the person and make sure they do not put in too much vermouth. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't like ordering them at bars because most bartenders will shake them, and that is not how you do it. I know, but I love them shaking. I want a big, <laughs> I want that thing to look like the Arctic Sea. Like, I want it to just to be ice. I want a penguin perched on the edge. I know, it's very, very not traditional, but. Well, I guess you're going the James Bond route. Yes, that's me. A woo girl and a James Bond type. Anyone who's met me would tell you this. Yeah, I'm not a woo girl. No, you're very, very serious, as you can see from the choice of uh, of a dirty martini as your classic cocktail. I love it. Matthew, I don't think I've ever gotten yours. Yeah, my favorite cocktail is probably a Moscow Mule because I like. It's also my favorite. Yeah, I like a refreshing thing. So, like during mm-hmm. quarantine, I've just been making gin and tonics because they're both very easy and very refreshing during the summer. Uh, I think once the weather cools down, that's when I'll shift to more dark liquor. But all summer, I've just been drinking gin and tonics alone, uh, trying to figure out. Like what to do next, and there's never an answer. You know, like I'll make a gin, and, I'll make a gin and tonic, and then I drink half of it. You know, and then I start to feel better than I did ten minutes ago. And then, I, like you know, that feeling where you like think about all of the possibilities, or like you have that like little flutter in your chest, and then you're like, oh well, there's nothing I can do with this feeling right now. I guess I'll just stare at Twitter or something, or <laughs> yell at the TV. I've been yelling at the TV a lot, um, not even just for sports, for like when I'm watching like a show with a narrative i'll like insert myself you know like they're my friends so yeah Mm -hmm. that's what i've been up to it's been good um but i haven't made a moscow meal at home yet i've been too lazy honestly it's literally two ingredients three if you add the that involves buying them see that's what the gin and tonic is there for just two ingredients okay i mean i think you have to have a lime and a gin and tonic but yeah i guess yeah i guess you're right yeah that is three so yeah and i do have all those uh, i have all of them in my fridge right now so doing pretty good today i don't know about tomorrow but you know <laughs> my quarantine motto has just been get through the day and then start over again the next day yeah yeah that's uh that's pretty much how we've been living which is uh not fun um, you know, I I know that we've all seen the memes about, oh, Shakespeare wrote whatever it was, Macbeth. No, Hamlet. I don't even remember which one King it was. King Lear, which I've King never even Lear. heard of. So it kind of defeats the purpose of that <laughs> statement when it's like not his most famous work. You know, King Lear is good. And I have a theory that it's because it kind of centers on three women who are not like necessarily the main characters, but they are important characters that it's just been, you know underproduced undertaught but anyway i didn't read king lear until i was in college as an english major but it's good uh it is also not what i've been doing with my quarantine Uh, i'm much more on the matthew track of getting through one day at a time just white knuckling it till dawn amanda however has uh has used this time to actually produce a work of some substance which is why you're on the podcast tonight with so, two kids in the house too. With two, no, not just kids. I mean, these aren't like eight-year-olds who you know you can b- b- make up a game like, oh, we're we're gonna play dust the floor and you're gonna clean the house while I do. <laughs> eight-year-olds are great game. like that. Yeah, the quiet exactly. game was a classic in my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, these are these are like little toddler-sized people. Slash. Yeah, four and two. Yeah, so you know, Amanda is. Doing that in a in a house with tiny humans all day, but also has churned out this. What is your total word count on the on the piece? 
Oh Did my you ever gosh. add it all together? Yeah, I don't know. It's over 15,000. Um, it, it's much longer. I cut a lot of stuff out of it. It's probably close to about 25,000 words that I wrote. Yeah. So, like, uh, just a little novella. Well, like, like <laughs> I a mean, probably of honestly a about the same length as King, King Lear. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk to you about how you got inspired to do this and what your process was as you've worked through this. Maybe so, you know, during these waning, what I hope are the waning months of quarantine, um, maybe I can take a lesson from you and, and channel <laughs> my laziness into productivity productivity and, and come up with something similar. So how did the idea come to you and what was your process? Well, I discovered the joy of old newspapers over the last couple years researching moments in Mariner's history for the site. So for some reason, as soon as this COVID thing got very serious back in March, I thought, hey, there was a global pandemic in 1918. I wonder what that was like when it hit Seattle. So I started reading the Seattle Times online through the Seattle Public Library. Shout out to public libraries. And after reading through a few weeks worth of that, I wondered if that affected sports at all. So I started going through the sports sections and discovered a few little paragraph articles about a shipyard baseball league that was waiting to play its championship. So I kind of went backwards in time and looked at that and realized there was something to write about there. Interesting. So we should also mention, um, because I don't think we've said it yet, the, the title of the series on LookoutLanding.com is War, Pandemic, and Seattle Baseball in 1918. Uh, there's three parts to it, so uh, that's why it's so many words. It's not just one 25,000-word <laughs> piece. Uh, it's broken up for your reading convenience, so go check it out, um, and then come back and listen to this, or do both at the same time if you're one of those people. Um, but yeah, it's all up on the on Lookout Landing. You should read it. It's fantastic. Um, the amount of research that went into it, uh, I can't even imagine. Like time wise is time wise is one thing, but then also just the the mental toll, which is what I was going to ask you next. Because like obviously we are all living through a pandemic. Um, there's times where I know for me personally, like I don't want to think about it ever, or like even entertain the idea of badness you know like I've been trying to stay as positive as possible or my entertainment has been very like turn my brain off rather than think even more kind oh, of oh yeah thing. I've watched that babysitters club show on Netflix like five <laughs> times already <laughs> yeah I know I've been the same way I've I have not like my attention span has been bad I've been just kind of all over the place mentally so my question for you Amanda was as you're researching a pandemic in the middle of a pandemic and then also trying to figure out a way to write about it in an interesting way. Did you ever have points where you like needed to step away? You were getting like pandemic fatigue or like what was what was going through your brain as you were learning all this brand new information about a situation that we're kind of living through again? Yeah, you know, it actually made me think a lot about why we study history and what we hope to get from it. And for me, 
anyways, I think there's a comfort in the past because as horrifying as things might be in the past, they've already happened and they're over and the world has moved on. So in a way, everything kind of turns out okay. And I also think there's an aspect of the human ego that thinks if we learn enough about history, we can harness that knowledge and change the course of the present. I don't know that we actually do that all that often. Yeah, I mean, the the history of racism in this country, which I think we're being kind of confronted <laughs> with today, is uh, is proof that maybe it is an egotistical idea that we're we can learn from the past and put it in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And you see the roots of our current racism back in 1918. Um, We can get into that a little more later. Um, There was also rising rents in Seattle at the time because of the war economy and Seattle had so many war industries. A lot of people were coming here to take those jobs and it there's only so much housing. So it drove those prices up, which is something we've seen recently with the tech companies. So just different industry, same problems. Um, and I also think that in looking at the past, we're just trying to understand ourselves and the immutable aspects of human nature and nature, nature. So we're always going to have pandemics. They're always going to kill people and people are going to react in destructive ways. So I think part of what was driving me to look at that was to try to understand the moment I'm living through but through the prism of the past where everything has turned out okay. But I I did need to take a lot of breaks when I was doing this because it's one thing to think in abstracts about so many people dying. And it's another when you're looking at the newspapers and seeing the names and information about people who died. So one of the characteristics of that pandemic was that it killed so many young people. It was people in their 20s and 30s mostly who died. So a lot of children were orphaned and a lot of children lost both parents or one parent. And the demographic that was the most likely to die from it was pregnant women. So just being a parent myself and reading about all these kids losing their parents was just really difficult. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's not easy for anyone to read at all. And then especially once, like you said, it's striking how many similarities there are between a 2020 pandemic and a 1918 pandemic, not just in terms of the death, but like you said, I mean, like the rising rents and race riots, like they always say that history repeats itself and it's like, I always seem surprised when it does. Like, people have been saying that forever. And then when I come across an instance where history is repeating itself, I'm like, oh, my God. Has anyone ever noticed this before? (laughs) Breaking. (laughs) Breaking inside over here. I think... Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the idea that the past is not the past, too, is like, you know, a lot of times what we've absorbed is this romanticized or colorized version of it like 
in Annie, we don't think about the fact that, like, why are all those children orphaned? I, I mean, honestly, it does kind of overlap time-wise with people who would have, they would have lost parents to this, right? But mm-hmm. that part of the story is completely cut out. It's just this group of plucky little orphans and, you know, the happily, the happily ever after of winding up in Daddy Warbu- Warbucks. This seems... Yeah. Warbucks? That's <laughs> never even really thought about that. There. Yeah. Yeah. So is I, Daddy Warbucks appropriating orphan culture? <laughs> it's time to have that conversation. <laughs> but yeah, it's just, and then when you really sit down and and study it in the way that you have, and uh, it is a little heartbreaking to see that we haven't learned these lessons. You would send me drafts of this. And I got depressed (laughs) looking at these things, including like the managers of these baseball teams who kind of did the same thing that we're seeing in baseball right now, where they were crying poor and saying the economic impact of the sport is too much. And, you know, eventually, long before they felt like they had to to halt things for health reasons, they had to halt things for, uh, or decided to halt things for economic reasons yeah yeah baseball as a whole wasn't affected by the pandemic all that much it was mostly world war one because there's this economy of wartime where your whole economy shifts to producing things for the war so a big thing was when the u.s entered world war one which had been going on for three years before we got involved The United States didn't have any ships. We relied on the British merchant marine system to ship anything we needed over to Europe. So all of a sudden we had to start building ships so we can bring troops and food and equipment over to Europe. And just the the entire economy shifts. So whatever you're doing before building cars or whatever, you shift that into making vehicles for the war. So everything changed and war is extremely expensive. So the government started taxing upper incomes to help pay for that. They started putting out war bonds that people could buy to demonstrate their patriotism and their loyalty. And the cost of living just skyrocketed. I I can't remember the exact numbers right now, but it, doubled roughly between like the beginning of the century and the end of the war. So there there were definitely economic concerns. I don't know how much that really affected baseball owners because they were in the upper echelon anyways. Well, they had to pay that war tax, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, but especially in the minor leagues, people lost a lot of money investing in minor league baseball then. So it's hard to say exactly how much of it was just crying poor versus actual economic constraints. But baseball also shut down because the government wanted to draft everyone they could into the army to go physically fight the war. So they ended up taking most of the young men who were also of baseball playing age. 
So let's get a little bit more into the growth of this shipyard baseball, because this was something that I, before I started reading the series, didn't have any... I mean, I knew there were, like, pickup games and stuff. I didn't ever realize that things were as regimented as they were, and that as, you know, MLB and, well, Major League and the Minor Leagues kind of came under fire and were decimated in the draft... These leagues really only grew stronger. So tell us about what the mm-hmm. shipyard... For people who haven't read the thing yet, a little preview of what the shipyard leagues are and the role they played in uh, the culture and the community. Okay. So Seattle was one of the biggest shipyard building areas in the country. And all sorts of shipyards started popping up. And as a way to keep up the morale of the workers, the shipyards would sponsor company teams. So workers could go try out for these teams and play baseball against other shipyards. And this was something for employees to go watch and boost their morale. So it's kind of like now how if you work at a tech company, they'll have ping pong tables and Friday afternoon (laughs) beer carts. It was just a lower tech version of that. But like that combined with like beer league softball or like a rec league (laughs) softball was initially how I thought about this. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, cute. They had like, cute. They had a little team and it probably looked like lookout landing softball. This did not look like lookout landing softball. No. And so in 1917, the shipyard league started and it was just with some teams in the Seattle area. And they started having competitive teams they put up a trophy that you could win at the end and a lot of baseball players started coming to work in the shipyards because it gave you some protection against the draft because you were working in an essential war industry and in a lot of cases you were making more money than you were especially playing minor league baseball so you could go here play baseball keep up your skills and kind of ride out the war So the shipyards were really attractive for that. And you also have to remember at the time, Seattle could only follow Major League Baseball through newspaper articles. You couldn't watch on TV or listen on the radio. So these community teams were really how Seattle indulged itself in baseball. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. And it wasn't just shipyards that had teams. All sorts of companies had teams and fraternal organizations would have them. 
So there was one team that was mentioned a lot for the Hibernians, which is an Irish Catholic fraternal organization that's still around. But back then, it was a place for Irish immigrants to come together and play on teams and have a sense of community within the Irish immigrant community, but to also interact with the wider Seattle area and other yes. people. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, this was like, because at the time, there I mean, we're talking about a time where there's anti-Irish discrimination, right? Pretty mm-hmm. rampantly. So there were groups like that. I know that at times, at, maybe not at this time, but there were groups of like Negro baseball leagues around Mm-hmm. All black teams. Uh, there was also one team that was officially sponsored by one of the uh, shipyard teams that I was really <laughs> taken aback to read uh, when you listed like, oh, there were the the Doothies and there were the whatever else, and then the the Ku Kluxies or whatever they were called, the Clanners, yes. the the Ku Klux. <laughs> I forget what it was exactly. My eyeballs fell out of my head when I read it, but. <laughs> Yeah, so there were all black baseball teams playing in Seattle at the time, and they did play against white teams. I I don't think there were any integrated teams playing. I didn't run across anything that indicated that, but having black and white teams play each other is fairly good for the time. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of racism in the area. And one of the shipyards, Skinner and Eddie, they are one of the biggest shipyards on the entire West Coast. And they didn't want to join the shipyard baseball league. So they started an intercompany league of four teams. And it was based on the areas of the company. So you had the Boilermakers and the office staff. And one of them was the Ku Klux, which says a lot about the makeup of the people who worked at that shipyard. Right? And also that shipyard being like, "Mm, we don't want to mix with any of the rest of you. We're going to just have our own league. Yeah. And of course, this was a time period when you're seeing the reemergence of the Ku Klux Klan. So that paints a fairly dire picture of what the race situation was like in Seattle then. Yeah, I definitely think that one of the things growing up in Seattle and one of the things that I got fed in my education, Matthew, you came after me and went to public school, so maybe you had a different experience. But I definitely had an experience where uh, Seattle just wasn't involved in race because we were just like gold miners until um, Martin Luther King and then racism was solved. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically what they taught me as well. Only the only like semi even race related things were like how they treated Native Americans, which was also not good at all. But they didn't teach us anything about black people in Seattle. I think remember when Quincy Jones did that GQ interview where he just like told the story of his entire life. That interview taught me more about black people in Seattle than 13 years of public schooling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read a YA book set at like the set in the 1920s in Seattle when. Uh, black people got moved kind of into that Yesler area. Well, that was like historically the black area, but then that area has been shrunk down and down and down. We've seen that, you know, into our century now even, but 
that book, like you said, uh, that book taught me a lot more about the black experience in Seattle than uh, anything in 13 years of school. <laughs> and Amanda's story filled in a lot of the rest. <laughs> yeah. this, uh, this conversation about team names actually reminded me of one of my favorite baseball fun facts. Do, uh, do either of you know what the Chicago Cubs were called before they were called the Cubs? I feel like I should, but I don't. I was hoping it would line up years-wise, but it doesn't quite. So from 1898 to 1902, they were called the Chicago Orphans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, they were not good. They were not good at all. <laughs> maybe that was like one of those things where they had been moved from a different... It's always interesting to me to trace like which teams yeah. moved where and how that the names followed them around, why the Dodgers were the Dodgers, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's weird because the Cubs obviously are like one of the older franchises. If you go to their just the Chicago Cubs baseball reference page, it'll take you all the way back to 1876. And the whole time they were in Chicago. So they were the White Stockings first and then the Colts and then the Orphans. And they've been the Cubs ever since. But I don't know what the, the story of that is. Amanda, maybe there's your next story. <laughs> Why were they called the Chicago Orphans? <laughs> Okay, yeah, I can look into that for you. <laughs> yeah, well, that actually kind of leads into another question I was going to have, which is you kind of hinted at this earlier, but with anything this big um, and with this much information that I'm sure you wanted to share because no one really knows about this topic, there's got to be a lot of stuff that got cut out. So like me personally, I know I'm pretty verbose. I always struggled with <laughs> my least favorite thing in school was a page maximum because I always had to like cut out a lot of stuff that I thought was important. That always annoyed me. This is your job, teacher. You read what I say. Yeah, exactly. If I want to write more, you should be happy about that, not punish me. But anyway, so Amanda, you probably ran into a similar thing, uh, just knowing that like if you included every bit of information that you would just have like a whole entire ancient scroll of information. But uh, what is what are some of your favorite things that you had to cut from the story or things that were the hardest to get rid of that you thought was really interesting but just didn't end up fitting in the final versions? I had to cut so many things and it was so painful. There's in, there's a saying in writing that you have to kill your darlings and it was it was very painful. I think one of my favorite things was I kept trying to find a way to work Babe Ruth into this story because he encompassed so many of the storylines throughout baseball just in this one season. And of course, he was with the Red Sox at the time, and he was primarily a pitcher. So he wasn't the huge personality in the Colossus. You think of him being with the Yankees. But he was primarily a pitcher, and he was a left-handed pitcher, so very valuable as a pitcher. But he wanted to play in the field and get to hit more often. So as the Red Sox lost players into the draft and into the military, he thought he had his chance to play more in the field. And his manager was very against this. They argued constantly about it. Um, One time they got into an argument and Babe Ruth quit the Red Sox and joined a shipyard team in Pennsylvania somewhere, I think. He only lasted three days and he came back to the Red Sox, but um, (laughs) 
he kind of, he also encompassed the theme of rage quitting, which happened a lot <laughs> in baseball at the time. Who, who knew Babe Ruth originated rage quitting? <laughs> and after the season ended, Babe Ruth played for a shipyard team for a short amount of time. His time with the shipyard team was cut short because he reportedly came down with the Spanish flu. Nobody really knows for sure. There were newspaper reports that he had it, and that's why he left his shipyard team. He obviously fully recovered and went on to get traded to the Yankees and become the Babe Ruth we know and love. He also possibly had the first wave of the flu in 1918 on an off day for the Red Sox. He went to a public beach and he was out carousing with all of his fans and eating and drinking. He was a big carouser from what I know about Babe Ruth. (laughs) And then he went on Instagram Live and videoed himself (laughs) apologizing. Yeah, he would have had to do that a lot if he... Oh my god, he, Babe Ruth would have been so cancelled all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but he shows up to pitch the next day and he has a fever, a sore throat, he just is barely functioning. And at the time, a treatment for a sore throat was to paint silver nitrates on your throat. <laughs> so... <laughs> Seems terrible to me. I would rather have a sore throat. But the Red Sox team doctor painted some silver nitrate on his throat, painted on too much, and Babe Ruth just collapses on the ground. He can barely breathe. He's choking. Oh my God. Probably in a considerable amount of pain, and he was hospitalized. There are articles in the newspaper every day about how he was on his deathbed. But he recovered after a week or two and came back into the Red Sox lineup and hit four home runs in four days. So very Babe Ruthian. Something else, Amanda, (laughs) that I know that you had to cut out about Babe Ruth that I was really hoping we could we could have it make it in um, was (laughs) the bit about the racism against Germans at the time mm-hmm. because of World War One, and I didn't, I never kind of put that together that maybe that's why we know him as Babe Ruth instead of uh, boy, George Herman, Frank Herman Ruth, whatever, George, Herman. George Herman Ruth, a very German name. And Babe Ruth never wanted to talk about his heritage because he grew up in orphanages. His dad was kind of around but not really i can't remember at the moment what happened to his mom but he had a rough upbringing and he accumulated a lot of nicknames over the years so when the united states went to war with germany there was a lot of anti-german sentiment and at the time the country was really a country of immigrants and I think I read a third of the population had was either an immigrant or the children of immigrants and Germans made up the biggest ethnic group within that immigrant sector. So people just kind of started calling him Babe Ruth to 
leave out the George Herman part. And he didn't like to talk about his ethnic heritage anyways, because there was a lot of rumors that he had a black relative or that he was part black, which was not okay in baseball at the time. So he kind of stayed away from all discussions about that, which maybe helped him slip into this nickname a little bit and just avoid all discussions about his past. That's fascinating. I had no idea that that was like a rumor. I feel like I've heard people joke about that because mm-hmm. like any, you know, like any dominant athlete probably probably wasn't just a white guy, but it's funny <laughs> that there was actual like traction behind it and that there was such thing as like different like there was different kinds of uh segregation against different kinds of white people. What a concept. <laughs> yeah, and so some of the funniest things about the anti-German sentiment that happened was we renamed German foods. So Frankfurters became hot dogs and hamburgers were Liberty steaks. And my nope. (laughs) Which you can eat with your freedom fries. And my personal favorite is that is a 9-11 reference for those of you. I just realized we probably have a lot of people on this podcast who are listening to this podcast who did not, uh, we're not around for the immediate post 9-11 backlash where France was seen as being not a strong enough ally or something. I don't even remember. But uh, yeah, we were supposed to call them freedom fries instead of French fries for a while. And I was like, I'm not doing that. And, you know, French fries aren't even French. Yeah, that, that's another fun fact. <laughs> So there's there's another example of history repeating. We just rename foods. But my, my favorite food renaming was sauerkraut, which became known as Liberty Cabbage, <laughs> which is just incredible to no, me. I think just, that's a, you can buy that in weed stores now, too. <laughs> Liberty, Liberty Cabbage, cabbage has been legalized. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> so, Amanda, my question when I was reading this, and even now when you were just talking about all the things that you've learned, is how do you know this? Like, I know I'm not not in like a, I'm discrediting your research or anything, but like, what is the process like for unearthing all of this information? Because so much of it is beyond just Google or even like Google Scholar or whatever. Like you had to dig into old newspapers and stuff. So I think our listeners would be interested to know like what that actually looks like or how like if you have one particular part of this that you want to research, how do you go about finding that in a newspaper that's 100 years old? Okay, I'll kind of walk you through the process I went through here. So the first stop was discovering this league, just randomly looking around in papers. And then I started to realize I needed some context for what I was reading about. So I did a lot of Googling and came up with some old newspaper articles that helped narrow it down. But there wasn't a lot of scholarship that had already been done on it, and particularly about this era. World War I just kind of gets forgotten about. Yeah, World War I is really underrepresented, and if it is, it's like kind of lumped together with the Jazz Age for whatever reason. Like, I definitely Mm -hmm. remember that in my history textbook. I don't think it's outrageous to say that this is probably the greatest piece of scholarship on shipyard baseball leagues in 1918 in Seattle? 
Yeah, I managed to find a book that was written about baseball as a whole during World War One, which was really helpful to me in contextualizing everything that was happening in Major League Baseball, because all of that trickled down to the shipyards, but also just getting a sense of why these shipyard leagues existed. So they were a really big deal on the East Coast, especially in the Northeast. It wasn't just over here. Um, so I started looking for books I could read about the time period. I went through my own personal library to try to find things because libraries were closed. So I was a little bit limited in what I could find. I found another Seattle newspaper, the Seattle Star, that was on the Library of Congress's website. So I read every article from April through November in the Seattle Star and the Seattle Daily Times to try to put together a picture of what happened that season. And then I relied on books and articles I found online to help contextualize the rest of it. I think that's so cool because it's such a cool way, especially considering like the state of journalism right now and the people aren't reading print media necessarily. I know the Seattle Times is suffering partially rightfully so with their um, subscriber numbers, but like newspapers are such an important record of what daily life is like and reading it day to day does give you that sense. I feel like that sense is just permeates through the piece like when I read it I didn't just get information about what this was happening in these shipyard baseball leagues or baseball at the time or the pandemic um but I really felt like I got a sense of like through all the quotations you included like how people talked and what was important to them and what they valued and what was funny to them so just a really great living document Thank you. It it was so much fun for me to discover everything because I didn't know very much about this time period. I didn't know very much about that pandemic. So to uncover all of it was very fun for me. What about challenges? I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of fun and rightfully so. It's like a very cool project to embark on. But I think with anything this big, there's obviously some parts where you're going to run into issues or struggles or just frustration so uh, what was what did that look like during your uh, your writing process well in actually putting the piece together it was definitely figuring out what to do with this massive amount of information i had because i took notes on every newspaper article that had something relevant and I, I probably have a hundred different Google Docs just full of notes. So it was a lot of information to manage. And that was the biggest challenge in writing the piece itself, but also just finding the time and the headspace to sit and think about this was a huge challenge. Yeah, well, I think we all run into that. I mean, like all of us, you know, willingly signed up to be Mariners writers and write about the Mariners and follow the Mariners and think <laughs> about the Mariners. But like there are definitely times where I'm like, I'm so sick of the Mariners. I don't want to I don't want any Mariners in my life for the next couple of days. But like sometimes that's not an option. You know, like I need to 
you know, pull my weight and everything and do that. So I totally know what you mean about like something that starts off as like, oh my God, this is so fun and whimsical. Look how much I'm learning and how much cool stuff I get to do. <laughs> that can morph into like, oh, now this is an obligation and that becomes a much different headspace to be in. And it's hard to, to navigate that. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that was, I mean, another big part of this project for you as well is like trying to separate like the fun element from the work element of it because that can be very tricky. Yeah, and there were certain parts that I just kept getting hung up on. There was something I cut th- that was describing an all-star game between uh, there was an all-shipyard team and an all-service team. And I ended up cutting this. Which, so it drives me crazy. I spent so much time sorting through it. But for so- I think it was the way the articles about it were written. I just kept getting caught there and thinking, oh, I don't want to push through this. Uh, There was also, I mean, you had to leave so much out. There were so many things that you wanted to chase down. Where do you go from here? Like, do you think you can make this into a book? Yeah, I... Yeah, it's definitely something I've considered. I kind of have a book proposal put together with this series. And there's just so many things I didn't get into that are interesting. And as a baseball fan and kind of a romantic baseball fan, I like to look at things through the prism of baseball. And the Shipyard League really sets you up well to do that because you can look out over the wider expanse of the time period just through these shipyard teams. I think it would be great. I will, if anyone is listening who is a publisher or is with Saber or anything, uh, get in contact with us because Amanda's got (laughs) way more in the tank. And also, I don't know what they're going to be doing with the Saber Awards when those roll around this year. But I am definitely nominating this piece. I encourage anyone who's listening to this to also nominate this piece. I think it's, um, obviously, you can tell how much work went into it. Um, I believe that there's a category for, like, best historical writing. So, uh, if this ain't it, I don't know what it is. (laughs) Thank you, Kate. (laughs) Yeah, so, Amanda, I agree with everything Kate said and uh, would encourage everyone. If you haven't read it yet, obviously go read it. But then from there, tell everyone you know to read it. Um, Amanda, obviously it's chronological. Like, it's a three-part series. You got to read them in order for it to make the most sense. But I'm curious if you have a favorite one or one that when you when people read it, you'd want them to know, like, oh, this is my my like my favorite child of the group. (laughs) Well, I like them all for different reasons. I think the best part is probably the first part because it's so much scene setting and trying to capture the feeling of the time. I think that one really showcased my enthusiasm for everything I was learning and reading about the best. I I like the third part because it's mostly about the flu, and that's what I really wanted to write about when I started doing this. I would this. like to say that third part has some details that haunt me about the flu. Like, yeah, the one about how when patients were flipped over, they would crackle. <laughs> the crackling has not left my mind. Yeah, subcutaneous emphysema. Not a fun thing. No. But I agree. I like the first one because I feel like you really... I like the first one and the third one. Um, But 
the ones where you really where I could like almost imagine myself into the story like or into the Seattle in 1918 like walking around on the streets people being excited you know it's it's pretty easy to lay that over onto what it feels like going to T-Mobile on a Friday night you know like everybody coming together and the community aspect which is a huge piece that I'm missing so much from baseball this year, but it made me feel more connected to it to read about that even a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the second part, I put together a section on what it's like to go to the ball game. And that was really fun for me because I pulled this information from so many different articles, but it was fun to recreate what that experience would have been like. And it's just, it's something that is very familiar, but it's also very different too. So it's interesting to see those differences. Yeah. So my last question actually was going to be like, do you think there's any lessons that can be learned here? We talked about history repeating itself and, you know, obviously with the pandemic, we hope that it doesn't repeat itself ever again. But along the way in your research, were there little nuggets that you took where you're like, oh, that could be applied today like even if it's not like medical just like things that people were doing at that time to make life more bearable amid a pandemic or the way that baseball worked back then like how they were able to make these shipyard leagues work was there anything that you read that you were like oh my god like we should actually be applying that to 2020 as well (laughs) you know not really specific lessons but more of an overall reminder that there are forces at play in the world that we can't really control. You can't, you can control a pandemic to a certain extent, you know, social distancing, mask wearing, all of that, but they're still going to happen. And I think it's important to remember that as important as baseball is to us, that there are things that are bigger than sports. And, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice a little baseball sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. I think it was Outcast who said <laughs> you can plan a pretty picnic, but you can't predict the weather. Yep. And that's kind of where we've been at all year and yep. in 1918, yeah. unfortunately. Really well. good, uh, good experience and just knowing that you're not in control and learning to be comfortable with that. Well, as Amanda said, controlling what you can control, wear your masks. <laughs> Yeah, please wear your masks so that we can one day actually see Kyle Lewis play in person oh again. My that would yeah. be amazing. I'm just I've been thinking about that a lot actually, not to take us on a tangent, but like the roar of the crowd the first time he hits like a mammoth home run, especially if it's like late inning, you know, like if they're losing and he hits a go ahead home run in the seventh or something, it's gonna be bedlam and I cannot wait for that to happen. Me neither, and I cannot wait to be sitting at T Mobile and you know, maybe look over to the shipyards where the baseball teams yeah. were played and, you know, <laughs> think about that connection between the past and the present and hopefully the future. So really cool work, right. Amanda. Thank you so much for everything you did on that. Thank you. It was, it's strange to say it was fun, but it was very fun. No, I think it was fun. I think people <laughs> will have fun reading it too, because it's such, it's like, I think the thing about like 1918, that whole era is like it's recent enough where we're like, okay, this is like relevant and interesting, but also far away enough that we kind of look at it through like a fantastical lens. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it feels like Mm -hmm. a completely different world just because of 
the technologies and everything and how different life was in the World War One era. So I loved it. I think everyone should read it, obviously. Uh, War, <laughs> Pandemic, and Seattle Baseball in 1918. Part 1, 2, and 3 on LookoutLanding.com right now. Um, Amanda has written a lot of historical pieces for us, too. Uh, your story about the kingdom was great. Uh, one story that I knew nothing about that I loved, too, was the Boston Massacre one where the Mariners blew... <laughs> A huge lead to the Red Sox at Fenway Park, and yes. Fenway wasn't selling beer that day, if I remember correctly. So, yep, it's a lot of fun stuff you can uh, <laughs> you can read from Amanda's computer to yours. Um, Amanda, where can people find you on the internet? Do you want to plug your Twitter or any your other blog? Don't projects? you have a blog of your own too, where you cross oh. some of this stuff? Yeah, I, I did. I put together a blog recently that links to all of my writing. If you are so inclined, that's at amandalanecoming.com. No S at the end of coming. Two M's. I, yes. <laughs> it's spelled the way you think it is. It's <laughs> great. Lane is L-A-N-E. I am also on Twitter at Mariner Mandy. Easy. Yeah. I'm jealous that you got your your regular name as your uh, as your URL there. I had to go Robertson Matthew for my personal uh, website. Yeah, the little yeah, things. They didn't well, have this problem in 1918. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, just get married and tack another last name onto the end. There you go. That would be very progressive of me as well. So I think I could kind of a two birds one stone situation. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I encourage you to do that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so for now, I'm just Matthew Robertson. Uh, I'm on Twitter, <laughs> at mrobertson22. Uh, all of us are writing and producing stuff at Lookout Landing. Kate Prusser was here, at Kate Prusser on Twitter, and head honcho of lookoutlanding.com. Uh, stick I around, folks. You'll... She does do the tweets <laughs> yes. as well. Um, stick around, folks. You only have a little bit left of this season. We're trying to make it as fun as possible for everyone. Uh, even if the Mariners are changing their roster every week. But in the meantime, check out Amanda's piece, and we hope you tune in for the next episode of this podcast with whatever guests we can wrangle out of their COVID bunker to talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Amanda. Uh, any final words before we sign off? I don't think so. Perfect. <laughs> Short and succinct. Yeah, he it. always asks that, but he never wants anyone to actually have that to say. <laughs> no, no, I do. I do. It's like your last, you know, like on Desus and Mario, you get your little, your neon sign that you can say whatever you want. That's kind of what I'm going for. Mm, but okay. If you have nothing okay. to say, you have nothing to say. And that's totally <laughs> fine. There's such a specific joy in having nothing else to add. That means that we got everything that we needed to out of the way. Dang straight. Dang straight. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. Wear your mask. Be safe. And goodbye. Bye. Cut me off and say goodbye. I'm ready to be sacrificed. Tell my